0: We're going to be uh, taking a break from John today. Um, I just didn't feel it this week. I had John 7 locked and loaded, and I just couldn't. It never felt right. So turn with me, if you will, to the middle of your Bible, to the book of Jonah. Now, if you have to look up in the table of contents where Jonah is, there's no shame in that. It's a tiny little book in there. There's only four chapters and um, what I want to do is I want to rescue Jonah from, from your mind for a second. Because um, how many have ever read a children's book or seen a VeggieTales movie or something like that about Jonah at some point in your life? The Sunday school pictures of Jonah. I, I once walked into a nursery and they had Jonah and the whale well painted on the wall. I was like, how, how horrible. We, we paint all these horrible things on our nursery walls. Noah's Ark, you know, there's a flood. There's all these happy animals on the boat. There's tons of people drowned under that water. These are not good stories for nurseries. And that's kind of some of us. When we look at these Bible stories, we kind of have this little, like, like seven-year-old version of these Bible stories taught to us like, I, I have never been in a Sunday school class with kids where they teach the fourth chapter of Jonah, and you'll see why here in just a moment. And so I want to take a moment and kind of rescue Jonah um, from what I would consider sort of a, a childish or nursery version and let you know who Jonah actually was and what this book is actually about, and I think we're going to have a, a lot of fun doing it, um, the first thing you need to know about Jonah is Jonah's actually mentioned another place in the Bible besides in the book of Jonah. He was actually a prophet of the Lord um, that prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam, Jeroboam II. Now, you might not know about Jeroboam II. He was one of the kings of the northern tribe. Uh, at some point, Israel had split into two tribes, and he was one of the kings of the northern tribe, and he was a bad king. He did exceedingly evil. And Jonah prophesied good things about this bad king. How bad was this king? He was named Jeroboam II. He was named after Jeroboam I. And it said he was just like him. Can I tell you what Jeroboam I did? He helped split the kingdom in two, which was not a good thing. And then he was worried that his northern kingdom, that they would try to go to Jerusalem and worship in the temple down there. So he had this idea I'll have my own temple where people can worship, and then they don't have to go to Jerusalem, and I'll set up a couple golden calves in there so people can worship them. That's Jeroboam 1. Not a good guy. Jeroboam 2, it says, was, was really faithful to his namesake. He made sure that line, that border between his kingdom and the southern kingdom was was nice and established. And that's part of what Jonah was prophesying. He's prophesying really great things about this really evil king. Now, Amos was also a prophet of the Lord. Amos was prophesying the exact opposite about the same king. So you decide. What was he saying? He was saying, listen, Israel, you've turned from the Lord. You need to repent. If you don't, You're going to be taken into exile. And that's really what a lot of the prophets, in fact, all the prophets of the Lord do. They all say the same thing. All the prophets of God in the Old Testament, they say the same thing. Like, Israel, you need to repent and return to the Lord. And if you don't, you'll go to exile. But once you're in exile, the Lord will restore you. It's those those three things over and over. You need to repent, turn back to the Lord. You're going to go to exile. But in exile, the Lord will restore you and return you over and over again, and that's really, it's, it's, a, it's a symbol of us, right? We turn our hearts against the Lord, and we, we are judged for our sin and, and walking away from Him, but He's good and gracious, and He restores us, right? That's, that's the story of us in the gospel, over and over again. And if you read any prophet, you'll see that. In fact, we're in Jonah. If you turn over to Micah, it starts like this. And the word of the Lord came to Micah. That's what prophets do. The word of the Lord comes to them, and they declare it. And if you read the rest of Micah, it's Micah telling the things that the Lord told him. And that's all the prophets except for Jonah. Jonah is a very unique book amongst the prophets. All the rest of the prophets are poems and visions and things that the Lord spoke to them, and they prophesy it. Jonah's different because Jonah is a story about Jonah, which is weird. It gets even weirder. Jonah is not what you think it is. We read the Bible sometimes, and we're just like, we get so stoic and so serious about it sometimes. Jonah is full of figurative and colorful language. It's, it's almost... It's very figurative, and it has these really big, outrageous things that happen. It's very much like, I heard one guy put it, it's like, it's like a comic book almost of ancient times. What does he mean by that, that Jonah didn't really get swallowed by a well? No. I, I believe Jonah actually got swallowed by a big fish, right? Um, but it's not that. What he means is, it's crazy. It'd be like me telling you a story and saying, you know, I went... I went floating the other day, and it just got, like, it was crazy, and the wind came up, and it just punched me. And, and then it just started raining cats and dogs, and, and the shore just completely disappeared. It was obliterated, right? Well, did the wind literally punch me? No, it's figurative language. Did cats and dogs come from the sky? No, that's figurative language, right? Um, did the Did the shore completely, did it just disappear? No, I just couldn't see it, right? It's these kinds of things. And when we read the Word of God, sometimes we miss those because we're trying to be so serious and so solemn. However, we do need to be careful of just saying, oh, that's figurative, that's figurative, and that's figurative. Because if you do that, then everything's just figurative and nothing's for real. So this is where careful Bible study is important. What we see with Jonah, this is a crazy story full of really wild outlandish things that are happening. In fact, The author uses the word huge 14 times in four chapters. Everything's huge. There's a huge fish and a huge city and a huge boat. And and in your English translation, it's mighty and great and exceeding. But in the original language, it's the same word over and over and over. This guy's trying to show us something big. The story's so crazy that even at one point, the cows are repenting. How do cows repent? Like the cows are repenting to God. And that's actually how the story ends. Like at the end of the story, God's trying to prove to Jonah that he loves people. And he says, Don't you think I should love these people and their cows? And that's, that's the last word of this, the whole thing is, and their cows end. Go home. Like it's a joke, it ends with a joke. And so when we read Jonah, sometimes we miss that because we're not living in this time. So there's all this colorful language and, and, and funny imagery and things like that. And we'll hit some of it as we go. And there's irony along the way. For example, it starts like this. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amati. Now, I want to tell you right now that Jonah, that name means dove. And son of Amati, that means son of faithfulness. So his name is Dove, son of faithfulness. And what are doves in the Bible, right? Like these nice, pleasant, you know, godly little creatures or whatever. So his name is Dove, son of faithfulness. How pleasant. What is Jonah through the entire book? The exact opposite of that. He is the least faithful character in the story. In fact, we're going to see these pagan sailors and they're going to be way more faithful and dedicated to God than the prophet of God himself. So the whole book is filled with irony and exaggeration and all this crazy stuff, and we're going to look at it real quick. And I hope I can rescue it from the way you grow up thinking about it. It says, so the, so, so the word of the Lord, and that's capital Lord, so that's Yahweh, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, the son of faithfulness, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the huge city and call out against it, for the evil has come up before me. The Lord, he doesn't like evil. He doesn't like sin. Let's, let's just be real clear. Sin is sin, and the Lord judges sin. We, we don't like to talk about judgment much in our culture, but it's there. So what did Jonah do? He says, he rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down. Say, he went down. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid a fare and went down, Say so went down. He went down into the ship. And if you keep going with that, it says then he, when he gets in the ship, he goes down, Say so he goes down further into the ship. And when he gets in deep down the ship, he goes down into a deep sleep, say, so goes down. And this, this language is actually like a, a metaphor for death. So here's Jonah. God says, Go to to Nineveh, and what does he do? He goes to Tarshish. And just so you know how opposite that is and how extreme this is in this story, Nineveh, where he's supposed to go, is on land that way. And Tarshish, where he's running to, is by sea the complete opposite way. So he's like, I'm completely getting out of here. He's trying to flee God, which, how? He knows he can't flee God. Right? But he's trying to do this crazy thing. And so he goes down, goes down, goes down. And and this language that the author is using is trying to show us the decline of Jonah, of drifting further down and further down towards death. And in verse 4, the Lord judges Jonah for his disobedience. What does it say? He hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. And this is one of those things again. The sh- according to the original, like the ship is actually threatening to break up. Like, how do ships think about doing something? It's actually threatening them. I'm going to break up. It's something we miss in the English. So the, the ship is threatening them. And it says that the the sailors, they were afraid, and they cried out to each their own god. These are polytheistic people. So all of them are crying out to all the gods they can think of. Like, save us, save us, save us. Nothing's happening. And where's Jonah? He's down in the depths of the ship, sleeping. And and I want to say something right here. Like, oftentimes we don't, like, we, we live in a very individualistic society, and especially in America in 2022, it's all about me. And our sin is that way, too. We don't think our sin affects other people. And I want you to lean in on this point right here. We think, well, if I sin, it really only affects me. If I don't do the thing I'm supposed to do or not do the thing, right? Sin could be not doing something or doing something. And we think my sin only affects me. And it's very rare that we truly understand the, how our sin affects other people. Jonah is running from God. He's living in sin, and his sin is affecting all these sailors. And where is he? He's asleep. He has his eyes closed to the situation. And I more times than not, like as a pastor, the thing I think I end up counseling with people the most is relationships with, with a friend or a spouse or a loved one. or who, It's relationships all the time. And what people often fail to see is how their sin affects other people. Case in point, some of you can think of someone whose sin affected you before, right? And that's a great example of how you're not realizing how your sin has affected somebody else before, right? It's really easy to pick up the times other people's sin affected you. It's hard to be like, but wait. In fact, some of us might be not walking in an area that we've been called to walk in. We're avoiding the Lord in an area we don't realize how our avoidance of being obedient to the Lord and that one thing is affecting others. Who hasn't come to Christ because we haven't been walking in obedience? That, that's sin. What are you supposed to be doing that you haven't been doing? And this is the other thing. I've, have you ever like just zoned out while you're driving before? I remember being 16, and you know, I, when you first start driving, you're just like, white-knuckling it, like, paying attention to everything, hopefully. Uh, we hope you are. But I remember the first time, I mean, I was a very careful driver. I remember the first time I made it all the way to my house out by Oak Grove from Berryville School. I was pulling up in, and I put the car in park, and I was like, how did I get here? You ever do that after a long day of work? You just, you just drive, and all of a sudden, you're just home. And just for all that time, you were zoned out. Where were you? What happened? I hope there were no kittens in the road. Like, this is insane. This is kind of where Jonah's at. He's just asleep. And that's us sometimes in our spiritual life. We just zone out. We just go through the routine of life, day after day after day, and the Lord's trying to call us and wake us up to do something and what convicted me was, I wrote this in my notes, is where could I be today if I had started something that God called me to do three months ago? Like we'd live in zone, or like I'm just gonna live in this routine and zone out and keep everything the same. Yeah, but a few examples. What if you like, you've been saying for, for months, I wanna start working out. What if you'd actually started working out three months ago, where would you be today? Like three months ago wasn't that long ago, right? Especially if you're older. Like three months seems to get shorter and shorter and shorter. What if you'd start working out? What if you started dieting three months ago? Like you keep saying to yourself, I'm going to do that. What if you started running three months ago? What if you started studying, like I'm going to start studying the word more? Like if you'd have dove dove into James three months ago, today you'd be an expert on the book of James, correct? Yet we keep saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to, and we just live zoned out and asleep. Where would we be today if we just, like, Three months ago, what's this, September? What was three months ago? June? Was that June? That was yesterday, right? What's three months from now? December? Trying to do math here. December's not that far away. Start your shopping, right? It's not that far away. Like, it's coming. And June doesn't seem that long ago. Christmas is going to be here and gone before we know it. And what... What do we need to start? Like, wake up. Wake up. I've been reading Revelations this week, and how many times he says, wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. Like, wake up. At some point, we need to wake up and be like, what is God calling me to? What can I start today that three months from now will be way further down the road because I just woke up and got busy? And some of you, when I'm saying that, there's things that are rising up in your heart. You're like, it's this, this thing. It's this thing. It's this thing. There's stuff you're supposed to start doing. Today's the day. Not tomorrow. Don't wait till Monday. Tomorrow's a holiday. You won't do it. You're like, it's a holiday. I'm going to sleep. Like after church, you, some of you are like, I got to start now. You're right, Pastor Drew. And do I say do it. Do the thing. Do the thing. So the men go down and they, they wake up Jonah. The captain comes to him and says, so what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. So they figured out it was Jonah who was causing the problem. And, and they, they, when they realize it's him, they start asking him. They're, they're in a panic. There's a storm going on. The boat's about to sink because God has sent a thing. And, and they're, like, they're asking him, like, they're shotgunning questions. Out of him. Where are you from? Who are you? Who's your God? Like, like just, just barraging him with questions. And he says this, I am a Hebrew And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, you read that before when you were a kid, or maybe in your Bible study, and you missed it completely. What do you say? I'm a Hebrew, okay. And I fear the Lord. Really? You fear the Lord? And the original readers would have seen this. Yeah, this is irony right here. You fear the Lord, you're running the opposite direction. And it says that he'd already told them that he was running from his God. He'd already told them that earlier. I guess when he got on the boat and paid the fare, like, in uh, purpose for your visit, uh, I'm running from the Lord, Yahweh. That's what it says. He'd already told them at some point why he was there. He said, I fear the Lord. He's a liar. He fears, He does not fear Yahweh. And by the way, I fear Yahweh, the one who made the sea. So wait. You're running from a God you can't run from who made the sea that you're, like, you're in a boat. You do realize that, right? And if you're chuckling, that's exactly what the author wanted you to do when you read that, to chuckle and be like, this guy's a moron. That's exactly how you're supposed to feel when you read this story. And yet, the moment you start getting critical of Jonah is when you realize that the writer of Jonah isn't actually talking about Jonah. He's talking about Drew. You see, this story is actually a mirror. And we, we so much, we're like, man, it'd be so good if they got a hold of the word. Or if they, And we want the, we want the word to be a, a window into people's lives. But before the word can ever be a window, it has to be a mirror. And so turns out, the moment I start getting critical of Jonah and thinking, what a moron, oh. This story is actually about Drew and how the Lord is wrestling with Drew. He said, I fear the Lord who made the sea. And they say, and said, when the men heard this, they were exceedingly afraid. So one of the two of them actually did fear the Lord. Was it the prophet of God or the pagan sailors? Irony again. The pagan sailors are the only ones that actually truly fear the Lord. That's how this kind of weird situation is going on in this story. They say, what have you done? Because he'd already told them what was going on. So they, he tells them what to do. He's like, if you want this to stop, you're going to have to throw me overboard. Like, we're not doing that. We're, we're, we're not doing that. Finally, it comes to it where they finally, like, okay, fine, we'll throw you overboard because it won't stop. And you could think of this one of two ways. One, Jonah has finally come to himself and realized the mistake he's made and he's wanting to pay for his sin, which could be a possibility. Or if you read chapter four, which once again is left out of all the children's books. You know, the little ones they have in the Sunday school, you know, the nursery over here. This part is in there where he pleads with the Lord several times. He throws a temper tantrum. He's like, just let me die. Like, over and over again. He's like, ah, just let me die. Like, that's his attitude. So, I, I personally don't think he's just trying to be like, well, it's time for me to pay for my sin. Just throw me I think he's more like, you know what would really show God? I'm not going. I'm not going to Nineveh. I don't care what he says, because they're trying to roll back the land and can't get there. He's like, you're gonna have to throw me overboard. I'm just, just let me die. So finally, they do. What's crazy is, if you look at verse 16, it says, then the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, or huge. And they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows. They committed themselves to Yahweh, and this is what's so great and how awesome our God is. You can actually be running away from God and God will use your disobedience to bring people to himself. You think you're so great, right? Well, the Lord, he really needs me. Does he? Like the Lord is so anxious to bring all people to himself that he can actually use Jonah's disobedience to bring people to him. You knucklehead. God's in control of all of it. And I I just, this astounds me that here we're at the end of chapter one and the only one that actually fears the Lord and is devoted to him now is these pagan sailors. My dad used to always tell me He's like, like, Dad, I'll be like, Dad, what if I make the wrong choice? I was trying to choose where to go to college. What if I make the wrong choice? He said, Drew, don't you think God is good enough that even if you choose the wrong thing, but you did it with the right heart, that God is good enough that He'll get you back on track? And that's true, right? That gave me a lot of peace in choosing my, co- my college. But I'll say this like, even if you're running from Him, if He's got a target on your back, He's going to glorify Himself through your life. And so even though Jonah was doing exactly the wrong thing, God was glorified through him. God was judging Jonah, and people saw it. And we think God's judgment, oh, that's just the Old Testament God. It's not. We'll talk about that here in just a moment. I have to move quickly. Verse 17 says, And the Lord appointed a huge fish to swallow up Jonah. And that, that'd be like a great the end right there. He's dead. That, wouldn't you think, if you read that, if you're the reader, now you guys all know how the story goes, but if you'd read that for the first time, you're like, now he's dead. He wanted to die, now he's dead. And then it says this, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And and I want to say this is so important because like, when, when Jesus is walking on the earth, the religious leaders look at Jesus and say, give us a sign that you're the Messiah. Give us the sign that you are who you say you are. He said, I'm not going to give you a sign. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Three days and three nights I'll be in the belly of the earth. What happens after that, after three days and three nights? He raises from the dead. And so this is an important part of Scripture. Because what we're supposed to assume here is that Jonah is like dead. Because Jesus was dead. And some people say, well, this is why. Some people think Jonah is just a parable. And I'll say, even if you think Jonah didn't really happen and it was just a parable, the lesson's still the same. It doesn't change anything. Now, I think this actually happened. Well, then how did Jonah, how did he breathe in there for three days and three nights? Okay, wait a minute. So you believe God can send a storm, and God can send a huge fish, but he can't send oxygen? Or maybe Jonah actually prayed this prayer we're about to kind of look at, and then he died, and maybe God resurrected him when He fished threw him up. I don't know how it worked, but we're going to get caught up in that there wasn't enough oxygen in the belly of the fish? I, guys, the Bible is supernatural. You realize that, right? Do you realize that God still does supernatural things today? The fact, first of all, the fact that he draws your heart to him is supernatural. The fact that people are still healed and that checks come in the mail at the right time. These are all supernatural things, and yet we're just like, no, God doesn't do supernatural stuff anymore. Like, we put on these, like, tunnel vision blinders, and we're like, how would he breathe in the belly of the fish? Because he's, he's God. But it's still outrageous that he's in the belly of a fish for three days. This is crazy. This is crazy stuff. 2 1 says, Then Jonah prayed. Finally, I think it might be a better translation. Finally, Jonah prayed. My, my buddy David Brockman, he said, Most people won't turn to the Lord until they hit rock bottom. But here's the thing everyone's rock bottom is at a different place. Yours and my rock bottom aren't the same, right? And uh, that's David Brockman. His testimony is when he was in high school, he was using meth and he got sent to drug rehab. And he met his wife, and we became best friends. And now he's discipling people to Jesus. He discipled me. The guy's never been to Bible college. He's just been to drug rehab. And he discipled me. Why? Because the kingdom of God is upside down what you think it should be. Listen to his prayer. We're going to hit this quick. I'm really close to being done. I know it doesn't seem like it. Um, I called out to Yahweh out of my distress. And he answered me. And I would say sometimes what we do when we get into distress is we say, God, you're not even there. It could be his judgment on you, first of all. Sometimes we rebuke rebuke the devil, and it's actually the Lord trying to get our attention. Hello? I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol. This is like the deepest, darkest place of Death. Remember how Jonah kept going down and down and down and down? Now where is he? Now he's way down in the belly of death itself. He doesn't say a fish. He's talking about death itself. He's way down in there. Says, even in that deepest, darkest place, you heard my voice. And that's how great and awesome our God is, right? That even in our deepest, darkest place, even when you have been completely rebelling against the God of the universe who loves you incredibly and he's put judgment on you, even when you're in your deepest, darkest place, you can cry out to him and he will hear your voice. He will answer you. Verse three says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. And all your waves billow over me. Wait a minute. Who cast him into the seas? Who's he saying did it? I was pretty sure it was the sailors, right? Aren't they the ones that tossed him overboard? What is he saying? He's saying it was God that did it. It was Yahweh. Yahweh tossed me overboard. Which is true. He's finally realizing something here. He's coming to himself and realizing, wait a minute. It was him, it was his waves. It was his judgment on me. Verse four, then I'm driven away from your sight and yet shall again look upon your temple. And what I love about this is he's like, I was driven away from your sight. Well, that's what he wanted. He wanted to be away from God. He wanted to be out of his sight, but now he's having to change your heart. He's realizing, I actually need him, and I want to look on his temple. Like, that was, temple was their place of worship, the, the center of how they sacrificed to God. For us today, it would be the cross of Jesus Christ, that when we realize that we've screwed up and we've been doing the wrong thing, we've been rebelling against God, we can took, turn and look at the cross of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and it brings hope to us. And we worship Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. He talks about how the deep water surrounded more of this imagery of going deep and going down, deeper and deeper. And it says, you brought my life from the pit. Okay, now we have up. You brought my life from the pit. So now we have this direction of of going up. And we sang that today. And he talks about remembering Yahweh, remembering the Lord and praying in his temple He talks about the steadfast love and thanksgiving and sacrificing how salvation belongs to the Lord. He's in a completely different place by the end of this prayer. He's realizing that God is good and he's faithful and he's loving. Yay, Jonah. And that's the end of the story. That'd be great. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out on dry land. So he gets out, he's got seaweed all in his hair and everything else. Cleans himself off. Who knows what this looked like? And look at chapter three, verse one. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. I would underline that in your Bible. The second time. Isn't God gracious and good? He's the God of second chances. I told you once. I'm not going to tell you again. I've never said that as a parent. I'm not going to tell you again. And then what do you do? You tell them again. Um, I've heard you. I've heard some of you right here in this church. I told you to stop that. How many of you are grateful that God tells us again? He tells us again. He, he wants us to walk in obedience to him. He, he tells him to go to Nineveh, and it says that Nineveh is a town so big it takes three days to walk across. Now, archaeologists tell us there was no town that big, right? And so I think this would be one of those exaggerations again, like, if I said, man, Kings River was so high, there was, like, people pulling tubes behind pontoon boats. There wasn't, right? That's just it's outrageous. So I, I think it was a really, really big city. Maybe it was, and we just haven't found it yet. I don't know. It could be literal. I think this is him just exaggerating again. This is a really big city. And so Jonah, it takes three days to get across. He only goes in one day, one day's journey. Right. Some people think it would have taken him three days to walk across and preach. I think you're over-spiritualizing it. I think he was just trying to say, it was really big, but he didn't go all the way through. He just went a, a third of the way through, like a little bit in there. And what does he say? In the Hebrew, he says five words. Five words. Yet, 40 days, Nineveh is overthrown. That's it. That's his entire prophecy. 40 days, Nineveh's overthrown. Five words in the original language. He doesn't tell them how it's going to be overthrown. He doesn't tell them why it's going to be overthrown. He doesn't tell them what they need to do to repent so it's not overthrown. He doesn't even mention Yahweh. He just says, 40 days, Nineveh's overthrown. I think this is Jonah's bad attitude again okay, God, I'll do what you want me to do, but I'll do the very least amount possible, right? I know, God, you're asking me to serve in this way or help this person do that. I'll do the bare minimum. I'll show up on Sunday. That's it. I know, God, you're asking me this. I'm gonna do the bare minimum of what you called me to do. What's crazy here? even though Jonah's doing the least amount possible, in verse 5 it says, the people of Nineveh believed God. Say believed. They believed God. And in in our American culture, when we believe something, we just think that's a mental thing. Like, I believe that the world is round. What are you going to do with that? I believe it. Like, we we have a, a new... I wouldn't say most of the people in this room, but like we know in in our Christian culture, people say they believe in Jesus, but then their lives never change, right? It's like I just believe. But these folks, they believe God, and says what they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And and sackcloth, what it is, it's it's a it's a material that you would use to make sacks, not nice stuff, right? Like you need sacks of stuff, so you. Use, sackcloth. In fact, some of them would just take a sack, cut a hole in it, and just wear the sack. Why would people do that? Because it shows humility. It shows that, like, I, I'm humbling myself. I, I'm not going to wear my nice clothes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put on sackcloth. I'm going to fast. How, what does fasting do to you? It makes you feel vulnerable. It makes you feel weak. It gives you diarrhea. Like, it's not a comfortable place to be when you're fasting. It's a humbling of yourself. And so what's happening is they believed God, and it resulted in action. Like, when you believe God, it truly results in action. If you just say you believe God, but there's no action, you don't truly believe God. Now, some people, you can get this reversed in the wrong way. You can have lots of action and pretend to be believing God. That happens. You can say you believe God and have no action, but what we're asking as, as believers and followers of Christ, if we truly believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, we believe it and our life results in action. And we see them, they repented, they fasted, they put on sackcloth, they put on disgusting garments and, and their, their belief resulted in action. It says that the king himself, says he arose from his throne, removed his robe, put on the sackcloth and he sat in ashes. He made himself dirty with ashes. Another sign of humbling himself before God. Guys, humility goes a long way. Some of us even, we've, we've, we've had problems in relationships. And I'm going to tell you, some of us need to humble ourselves in that relationship. I, I once knew two gentlemen that were at odds with each other for years. Both of them swore they were the right party and the other one had wronged them. And I was there one day when God got a hold of this one man's heart They'd been business partners, and it all went wrong. God got a hold of this one man's heart. He went to the other man and humbled himself and apologized. He said, I'm sorry. I treated you wrong. I did the wrong thing. I talked about you poorly. That was the right thing to do. You know what the other man did? He said, I told you. I told you I was right. And then he started telling it. He came to me and apologized. I told everyone that he was the one that was wrong. Now, Having known both these men intimately, I knew, like I could see, I had the outside perspective of what was going on. They both kind of screwed up. This guy had really screwed up. The guy that was like, oh, I told you. I told. See, he apologized. That proves I was right and he was wrong the whole time. Man, a missed opportunity for humbling yourself as well. And do you realize when you go to people and apologize to humble yourself, you don't go so they'll accept you. Or they'll think you're good. You go because the Lord told you to go. Husbands and wives, this is a really important thing. Sometimes we need to apologize to our spouse and just, what if they don't accept their apology appropriately? That's not on you. It's just for you to be humble and say, and that's with any relationship, to just be humble. And that's what's going on here. Is this, this is humility in practice. It says that, the king makes a decree. He says, let neither man nor beast nor herd nor flock taste anything. Let them not feed or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and call out mightily or hugely to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way. Like, like he's saying, everyone needs to repent, even your cows. And if you think this is strange, so would the original readers. Like, this is weird. Like, but what the, the author is trying to say is that they were so serious about repenting, they even make their cows repent. Now, did they actually? I don't know. This could just be exaggeration. I personally think maybe it was just exaggeration to prove a point. Like, he's just talking big and crazy. But they are so serious about repenting, they're even making their cows repent. You have to fast and put on sackcloth, too. So you have this image of all these people wearing sackcloth and covering up their cows and not letting them eat because we're all going to get close to God. And, And do you remember when you first came to Christ and you started sacrificing things for the Lord? Like, I can't do this anymore. I can't watch that anymore. I can't let that be a part of my life anymore. And other people were like, like, you've seen people do it now as a mature believer. like, well, they're just a little overzealous is what it is. They're even making their cows repent. What's wrong with that? right? What's wrong with that zealousness and passion? Maybe some of us need to return to some of that, like really dedicating ourselves to the Lord that we go a little overboard because we love Jesus so much. Like, no, I can't watch that anymore. Now we're afraid to not watch it because everyone think we're too spiritual. Like, oh, they just think they're better than me. Come on. Or what other thing? I just, it's easy to pick on what we watch because we all watch so much stuff. What's crazy is it says they turn from their evil ways. Go, go back to verse 4, where God is prophesying, or where Jonah is prophesying. Yet 40 v- days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. You see that word overthrown? Okay, let me, let me tell you, talk to you super quick about that word overthrown. Okay, that word overthrown can mean three things. It's hapik in the Greek, or in the Hebrew, sorry. One, it can be turned over. Like in Hosea 7, 8, they, it says Israel won't be, it's not being turned over like bread. Like you put bread in and then after a while you have to turn it over, right? Second, it could mean destroyed. Um, like in Lamentations 4, 6, it says that Sodom was hapik It was turned over. It was destroyed. And I'm pretty sure that's what Jonah in his heart meant when he said it. Like Nineveh is going to be overturned like Sodom was overturned destroyed. But it can also mean changed. Like in Psalm 30, verse 11, it says, you have hapick my grief and mourning into dancing. You've removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. It can mean literally like instead of overthrown, it could just mean overturned, like turned around. So when Jonah's all there prophesying, Nineveh is going to be turned around, overturned in 40 days. He was actually prophesying truth. What he was actually saying is you're going to turn. And he meant it as destruction. And it actually happened, but it wasn't destruction. They actually turned to the Lord. So they were overturned. They were changed. So it actually all came true. And verse 7 says, God relented. God relented. I, um, I think sometimes we struggle with this whole thing of God is judge and God is love. How many vote God is love, right? But God is also a judge. And we think those are two different things. Like if God is full of judgment, he's not love. So the Old Testament God is the God of judgment, fire and brimstone, and the New Testament God is the God of love. And I'm telling you, you're way off. It's the same God. Judgment and love are not mutually exclusive. Imagine this. You're walking by a playground. You see a bunch of fifth graders picking on a first grader. They're pushing them around. And you just walk by and say, oh, that's too bad. You just don't do nothing about it. No, so What are you going to do? You're going to walk in. You're going to bring some correction. You're going to push those boys back. You're going to judge them for picking on that first grader, correct? Well, how dare you be judgment, judging? Is that not love? Is not love to step in and judge those boys and correct them, maybe punish them, bring some discipline to their life? Is that not love? It is. And so what's happening right here is God has sent judgment to Nineveh. He said, I'm bringing judgment to your house, and they change, and so God relents. And here's what's so crazy. The place where judgment and love meet is something we call grace. We sang about it today. A place where love and judgment meet, we call that grace. And that's exactly what we find in the cross. Jesus hung on the cross to take the judgment of God because he loved us, which extends grace to us. Right here in this story, we see grace. Um, Robert, come on up. You know what I think is crazy when I was talking about humbling ourselves? says the king of Nineveh got off his throne. Some of us need to get off our throne. Do you know, and I know Jesus is God. He's in heaven. We've been talking about that. But in a way, when Jesus came and walked among us, like when it was hot, he sweated. When he stubbed his toe, it hurt. When his friends die, his heart broke. You know what that is? That's the king getting off his throne and walking among us. Really? Now, was God still in heaven on the throne at the same time? Yeah, but you understand what I'm saying? If Jesus was willing to get off his throne and die on the cross for us, what, 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 about, what about us? Are we willing to get off our thrones? Here's the thing you have to know about Nineveh and the Assyrians. These guys were ruthless, ruthless military conquesters. Like, like in the palace, they had this great palace that you walk into and their, their custom was to carve stories into the walls. They actually still have these on display in the museum in London, you can go see them. What's crazy is the Assyrians actually have carvings of them conquering the Israelites. You know what they did in the carvings? They drug their leaders out and cut off their skin in front of the people. Like, all the things you see of them doing to the Israelites in these drawings are actually, a lot of it's recorded in the Bible, like they match up. One of the carvings is of them taking the Israelite people They took trees and cut them down and made spears at the end, both ends. And then they'd they'd impel them and stick them in the ground, way up in the air. Dead bodies just all over in the air. A forest of dead bodies. These, this is the people of Nineveh. These are evil people. Think, Think Nazi Germany. Think that. That's the people of Nineveh. Evil people. And God had grace on them. God was forgiving to them. Could God forgive a Nazi? Jonah 4 says, this is the part they never teach you in school, or in Sunday school. This displeased Jonah exceedingly. and He was angry, and he prayed. He said, this is why I tried to run away. Like It wasn't because he was scared of the Assyrians, the Nazis, if you will. It wasn't because he was scared. It wasn't because of, well, what if they don't accept me? It was because he says what? I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Like, i knew you were gracious and he's actually quoting you know what he's quoting right here he's actually quoting exodus when well, remember moses comes down from the the mountain and he's got the ten commandments and they're, everyone's worshiping the golden calf and he's like ah and he breaks them and what is going on here and you think that's it they're done but they're not god has grace on them and he gives moses the ten commandments again like shows them grace he's quoting this passage Jonah knows his bible he knows that god is gracious and he's mad about it this is why i didn't want to come because you're gracious now just let me die That's I, let me die it's like what if god wants to forgive that person you can't forgive he must not be a good god anymore Like, there's someone in your life, and I'm not saying this is an easy situation. Maybe someone who's done you some very wrong, and I don't want to make light of it. But I'm going to tell you this morning the grace of God is a real thing. So, Jonah, he goes up on a hill, he makes him a tent, he sits there, and he waits for God to destroy them. God never does. But he's hot, so God sends this plant to give him shade. This is one of those weird, this is the comic book weird side of the story. God does this miracle for him, right? He creates this plant to give him shade from the sun. He loves it. I mean, he loves this plant. Like, weirdly too much he loves this plant. And no, it's not weed. I've heard people use this scripture, that, see, the Lord's okay with weed. He's not okay with weed. Sit with me and we'll talk. So he gives him this plant, and he gives him shade, and he loves this plant. He loves it way too much. And then the next day, God kills the plant. He sends a tiny worm, a little tiny worm, which is crazy, because the rest of the story, everything's big and giant and whatever. And there's a tiny worm, which is, and it kills the plant. And Jonah's mad all over again. Oh, you killed this plant, just let me die. Like a, like a four-year-old throwing a temper tantrum. Oh, I wanted my plant. That's exactly what's going on here. The reader that read it originally would have chuckled. Like, what's this guy's deal? He's a moron. Oh, he's a moron. Once again, oh, it's a mirror. And this is what God says. This is the way he ends it. He talks about the people of Nineveh not knowing the right hand from their left. Now, it doesn't mean they don't know. which, But not like these adults. Which one's that? not that. It means they're misguided. When he says they don't know the right hand from the left, it's like, if I don't know my right hand from the left, how am I going to get directions anywhere? Like, you'll go right. Uh, they're just misguided. These people are just misguided. And this is what he says. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh? It was a great city, which there was more than 120,000 people who did not know the right from the left and also their cows. So he ends with this kind of funny thing. And the cows. So we have this story of Jonah. And that last section that's never taught in your, in your Sunday school class, because it's weird, first of all, and it makes Jonah look like a jerk. And we, can't, we want Jonah to look like a hero. He finally went and told the people, of you know, turn to the Lord. He never said turn to the Lord, at one time. He didn't mention Yahweh at all. He was just completely selfish from start to end. And this is the weird book of Jonah. So now let's hold this thing up as a mirror to us. Who is God trying to use us as influence in their lives? Like we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sin and our shame. He rose from the dead. He has full victory. And that he will extend forgiveness to anyone. He's willing that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And guess what? He wants to use you to do it. The scripture says, how, how will they know? How will they know unless someone preaches? Like, how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will someone preach unless they're sent? Like, we're the sent ones. Like, it's us. And there's that person that you just can't stand. And you don't care if they know God or not. Maybe that's not the way you think about it, right? Maybe it's way less subversive than that. You're just indifferent because you're on cruise control, you're sleeping in the boat. Where are you in this story? When you hold this story up as a mirror, what does it say about you? And I would say, every time Jonah looks dumb, say, Lord, is that me? Is, Is that, is that me? So this is the story of Jonah, which is a weird funny tale Nothing like the VeggieTales version at all. But I think I've rescued Jonah from the from the cucumber and tomato this morning and hopefully put him up in a place that when you read this word to use it as a mirror, every single thing in this book points to Jesus, including the story of Jonah. It's the only sign he said he'd give us three days, three nights in the bell of the earth. Will you stand with me and let's pray? I know it's a holiday weekend. I had to preach the entire book of the Bible, so it went a little longer than I meant to. But my prayer is that this weekend, first of all, wake up. Wake up. There's things the Lord's calling you to do. Start today. Start today. Be obedient to the voice of the Lord. Don't just do the bare minimum. Declare the Lord to those around you be a light. Be a light in the darkness. Father God, we come before you right now in the name of Jesus. And Lord, first of all, I thank you that, Lord, even when we're screwed up, even when we do the bare minimum, Lord, you use us for your glory. Lord, you shine through because, Lord, you work through weakness. But God, I pray today that we would not be like Jonah. Lord, that we would Look at this story for what it is, as an example of the way we shouldn't be. That we would be faithful to the word that you call us to. Lord, that when it's uncomfortable and challenging, Lord, that we would walk in the direction you have called us to. Now, right now, this morning, I, I believe we're called to action. Remember, belief requires action. I want us to take just 30 seconds here. I'm going to be quiet I want you to think, what one thing do you feel like the Lord's calling you to walk out after hearing the story of Jonah?